My name is Adrian Monk. I work for the World Economic Forum in Geneva. Every week, we present a short podcast called On Our Radar. And what's on our radar this week is Christmas. Now, economists don't really like Christmas. They kind of view people as rational economic actors. And the idea that these rational economic actors should withhold their consumption and then engage in orgiastic and ritualistic eating and unnecessary spending bothers them. Why would people spend money on gifts, the value of which is almost certainly less to the receiver than to the giver? Well, for a start, Christmas is not actually an economic festival. It's a religious one. We know the first reference to celebrating Christ's nativity on December the 25th is back in the 4th century AD, AD 354 in fact. But you can go back even further in history to some of the customs and practices around what we now think of as Christmas. And one of the essential customs and practices is the Christmas feast. Feasts are not just social or economic occasions, Brian Hayden says. They are fundamental to the emergence of modern economies. So Brian Hayden is an archaeologist. He studies feasting all over the world in all kinds of societies, especially tribal. And he says basically that the networks and the debts of feasting systems are what holds societies together and they can be gamed by people. So when I invite you to come to dinner at my house, you invite me to come to dinner at your house, we create a system of interdependencies. And those interdependencies can be gamed. Some people can issue more invitations, they can generate more surpluses. And from this, we start to get the first hierarchies. I invite you more often to my house, you start to feel that you owe me more, I start to ask more of you, and therefore I start to accumulate political and social power. And Professor Hayden says this happens around 30,000 years ago for the first time in Europe, in a time called the Upper Paleolithic. It's a time when people were painting caves, probably driving bison off hills, all those kind of incredible things. So when you sit down to enjoy your Christmas turkey and stuffing, you are engaging in exactly the kind of activity that people way back in the dawn of modern human history were doing to create the first hierarchical economic societies. Now, perhaps that isn't what you want to think about when you're passing the next mince pie, but at least the example of feasts is a reminder that economics is not just a science of distribution. Surpluses exist to generate social and political advantages not to allow the efficient allocation of resources. Again, these aren't necessarily insights that will have you pulling a Christmas cracker or sharing a mulled wine across the Yule log, but perhaps a little anthropological, archaeological insight would have won Scrooge round quicker than the three ghostly visitations. Or perhaps even a visit from a business school professor like Philip Hancock. Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol is credited with inventing the modern Christmas. Back in the 1840s in Victorian England, the tale of Scrooge, a mean, miserly old man who is visited by three ghosts and changes overnight into a genteel, happy and joyous celebrator of Christmas, is a Christmas classic. According to Professor Hancock, Dickens was writing in an age just before the appearance of the industrially produced Christmas good. While there were still no gifts or gaily wrapped presents in the Christmas Carol, the message of the book is quite clear. Consuming and indeed producing and selling on a scale with positive enjoyment 
is essential to the happiness of the season. Scrooge's redemption, says Professor Hancock, is brought about through a willingness to engage, not simply in his relatively isolated practice of usury or money lending, albeit more benevolently, but to fully commit to the idea of market commodity exchange. What a romantic, Christmassy idea that is, as a means by which he may once again enter the social sphere. Christmas consumption, says the professor, is represented as a means by which individual redemption might be achieved and equally, if indeed not more important, a means of meeting the emerging need for a culture of consumption in a manner that is positively virtuous. So there you go. Consuming stuff at Christmas is feel good and also it's about doing good. That's the message of A Christmas Carol, according to business school professor Philip Hancock. But of course, economists have been thinking about Christmas in more recent times from a rather more academic point of view. Probably the first serious or semi-serious look at modern uh, Christmas economics was Joel Waltfogel's. His 1993 paper, The Dead Weight Loss of Christmas, is a Grinchonomic, no sleigh-bell prize-winning take on present giving. Professor Walt Fogel argues that the further the relationship between giver and receiver, the more value is destroyed in your gift. In other words, your parents might know what you want, but your grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, friends, and very, very extended family probably have no idea. The gap between what they've spent on your present and the value that you place on it, that is the dead weight loss. So when you come to buy toys for the kids, what ought you to be thinking about? The folks at Frontier Economics have been doing some research on how toys perform as investments over time. Their modeling tells them that the best buy of this year is the Lego Star Wars kit. But the bad news is that to preserve the value of these kinds of gifts, they have to stay in the box. So their advice is to choose something a little bit more traditional. So if you remember, gold, frankincense and myrrh were the gifts bought by the wise men. And they point out that gold since the 1980s has enjoyed quite a good, albeit modest, rate of increase over time. So it's not a bad investment for your kids. And frankincense and myrrh, sadly, no longer kind of global benchmarks. We don't really see a frankincense and myrrh market. But the price of perfumes has increased respectably over time. So as ingredients in those wonderful things, you might expect either of those to be an adequate substitute. Really though, next year, instead of looking at the wrapping paper and the bow tying, just send a little bit of cash. We should give the last word on Christmas to two German economists, Anna Gerdeker and Laura Berg. Now they've looked at the so-called Santa Claus effect. This effect is something identified by a number of macroeconomists, and what it means is that we all rush out to the shops in October, November and December to buy our gifts, and then of course we all stay at home at the beginning of the year because we've spent ourselves out buying unwanted stuff for friends and loved ones. Now they can't really see whether or not this effect exists, the so-called Santa Claus effect. But more interesting than the question of whether Santa establishes a business cycle, they say, is whether such an increase in employment and output, people coming in being paid to stack shelves and do all kinds of things to cope with this boom at the end of the year, followed by a contraction at the beginning of the year, is economically efficient. There again, they're back in this efficiency mould, thinking about us all as economically rational actors. Their suggestion is that the government should smooth out the business cycle by decreasing its spending in the fourth quarter and increasing spending in the remaining three quarters. 
That way they say there could be a little bit of Christmas every day. Now, some Santa state intervention does fit broadly in with the renewed interest in the role of government amongst economists. However, Santa's refusal to allow workshop inspections, his globalized distribution system, and his avoidance of tariffs means that the skids could be well and truly under his sleigh this Christmas. I'm Adrian Monk at the World Economic Forum. That's been On Our Radar. We'll be back with you next year. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you.